0: Once again, I would like to reiterate that this podcast is not intended to be an extremely elaborate or detailed account on any of the events that I cover over the course of the podcast. It is only intended to be a crash course on the events that took place. If you would like to find more detail, feel free to research anything I talk about yourself. I do encourage it. Enjoy. Welcome again to Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened where Tanner talks about stuff that happened. I am Tanner, and I'm going to be talking about stuff that happened. And the stuff that happened that I'm going to be talking about today is the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989 that happened in Beijing, China. Uh, We're going to be talking about those today. It's a tragic story, but it is very fascinating to hear how all of these events played out in a communist country, particularly a communist country who was evolving from a communist country to more of kind of a democratic communist country is it's fascinating to see how those things played out you may hear that I'm a little bit I'm sounding a little bit different today I I was very sick yesterday and I'm still coming out of that today and that's why I didn't uh, release an episode yesterday I usually release them Thursdays but today is Friday still going to get it out to you because this is a subject I've actually been excited about so without further ado I'm not going to waste more of your time so let's get started The Tiananmen Square protests of 1989. These instigated a wider movement in China called the 89 Democracy Movement. And these protests were a gathering of around 1 million people in Tiananmen Square, a central hub of tourism and a monument to national pride located in Beijing, China. Um, That was the capital of the largest communist country in the world, and still is. The causes behind these protests, the protests themselves, and the violent manner with which they were quelled, and the government cover-up that lasts to this day are what Tanner will be talking about today. So... We gotta backtrack pretty far to get the full gist of what was going on here. So, the Tiananmen Square is named after the Tiananmen, which translates to the Gate of a Heavenly Place, which led to the Imperial City and the Forbidden City within, which held the nobility of the country. This was built around 1450. Now, 200 years later, during a period of civil war in China, the gate was heavily damaged, nearly destroyed, and as the rebuilding process commenced in 1651 the decision was made to put a city square adjacent to the newly refurbished gate. This became known as Tiananmen Square. But that was not the Tiananmen Square that we know today. The square has been expanded on three separate occasions all in the 20th century. First, in 1954, when another large gate, namely the Gate of China, was demolished to make room for expansion. Uh, then again in 1958 and 1959, when Mao Zedong desired to expand the square to make it the quote, largest and most spectacular in the world. And again in 1976 and 77, following uh, Mao Zedong's death. At this point in time, the square spans 4,746,121 square feet, over 80 American football fields and area. That's pretty big. At the time the protest began, there were 10 large buildings in or around the square built on order of Mao Zedong during the 1958 59 renovations, commemorating the 10th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China as part of his disastrous Great Leap Forward initiative, which I'm sure I will cover in a future episode. I'm going to list these buildings off. Among these are the Great Hall of the People, the National Museum of China, the Cultural Palace of Nationalities, the Beijing Public Railway Station, the Workers' Stadium, the National Agricultural Exhibition Hall, the Dayu... I don't know how to say that, but it's Yutai Guest House, the Minzu Hotel, the Overseas Chinese Hotel, the Chinese People's Revolutionary Military Museum. For the sake of mentioning, uh, maintaining the central purpose behind this podcast, I'm not going to go deeply into detail behind any of these buildings, but uh, the information I found was at www.chinadiscovery.com forward slash Beijing forward slash Tiananmen square. And as I always will, I encourage anyone with a curious mind to look more deeply into the history of every single one of these buildings because history's awesome. Other monuments that call the square home are the Tiananmen Tower, which acts as a gate to the Forbidden City, something I have very long had a fascination with, and the Monument to the People's Heroes, the largest monument in Chinese history, standing at 38 uh, meters or over 124 feet tall. All told, with these construction projects all having been completed in 19- by 1989, at the time of the protests began, it was an impressive sight to behold and a testament to the will of the Chinese people, or maybe the Chinese government. You decide. Many scholars argue that the story of the Tiananmen protests Dates back to 1979, 10 years uh, years prior, when Deng Xiaoping, the leader of the People's Republic of China at the time, began a series of economic reforms which opened the previously isolationist country to foreign trade and tourism. With these reforms, the citizens of China, long oppressed by the ideals of Mao Zedong and the turmoil of his regime, came into contact with people who had lived in countries where their freedoms were innate and unalienable as human beings. As the borders became open to trade and the economy of China began to prosper, the educated class began to become restless. Chinese reporters began reporting on topics that had been forbidden during Mao's regime. On college campuses, for the first time since Mao's takeover, students were openly debating politics as they learned about Western democracy. And a wall, dubbed the Democracy Wall, located in Beijing, was plastered with papers concerning politics, often written anonymously. It was a time of unrest in the country, and in the decade following the reforms, tensions between the working and ruling classes reached a boiling point. The final straw came when the former General Secretary, Hu Yaobang, died of a heart attack while attending a summit for education reform on April 15, 1989, at the age of 73. It was widespread knowledge that the current regime of the country was a swamp of corruption, but Hu Yaobang had become a symbol of incorruptibility in the face of this. Many called him the people's hero, and his death was met with nationwide grieving. Many suspected that he'd been murdered by the, ju- by the government for his controversial pro-democracy and reformationist views. Though Hu did not hold a high office at the time of his death, Chinese leaders found themselves pressured into giving him a public memorial service in the wake of his death in the Great Hall of the People, located in Tiananmen Square. On April 22, 1989, over 100,000 mourners crowded the square to pay their respects, a turnout that deeply unnerved China's leaders as they viewed Hu as a dissident. And he'd been pressured into resigning from his office in 1987, and they had intended to close the square for the funeral. At this funeral service, the Assembly of Citizens in the Square delivered a letter of petition drafted by university students attending nearby Peking University to the premier of the People's Republic of China, Li Peng. Li is going to be a pretty central character in this story, so remember him. This letter expressed the innate dissatisfaction the funeral goers felt toward the government for their slow and lackluster response to Hugh Yaobang's death, and contained a list of seven central demands. 1. Affirm Hugh Yaobang's views on democracy and freedom as correct. 2. Admit that the campaigns against spiritual pollution and bourgeois liberalization had been wrong. 3. Publish information on the, out, on the income of state leaders and their family members. 4. Allow privately run newspapers and stop press censorship. 5. Increase funding for education and raise intellectuals' pay. 6. End restrictions on demonstrations in Beijing. 7. Provide objective coverage of students in official media. The letter was met with no response. By nightfall, infuriated but unsurprised, the solemn assembly turned to protest. 10,000 students remained in the center of the square, congregating around the monument to the People's Heroes. A group of 21 student leaders met and formed the Beijing Students Autonomous Federation, which would be instrumental in creating organized protests throughout the city and country in the weeks that followed. Feeling that control of the situation was slipping from his fingers, the first vice chairman of the Central Military Committee, Commission, Zhao Ziyang, called a meeting of the Politburo Standing Committee in which he highlighted three central points. Discourage the students from further protest and ask them to return to their classes, use all measures necessary to combat rioting, and attempt to open dialogue between students and government officials. Baffled by his interest in what he viewed as bowing bowing to the demands of what he viewed as a new domestic terrorist organization, Premier Li Peng, who had ignored the letter from the students, protested. He called upon Zhao to condemn the protesters and suggested that a more serious action be taken to restore order. Zhao Ziyang dismissed his concerns. Frustrated, Li Peng waited. He did not have to wait long. Days later, Zhao Ziyang left for a routine visit to North Korea, leaving Li Peng as the acting executive authority in Beijing. So Li went to work. On April 24th, he met with, a state se- with state secretaries to gauge the situation in Tiananmen Square. He convinced them that the protests were a ploy to overthrow the state, including Deng Xiaoping. With Zhao Ziyang absent, Li Peng took complete control convincing many state officials that dramatic action must be taken against the occupation of Tiananmen Square. He called for a strict warning to be distributed to the students. So, on April 26th, a state-run newspaper called the People's Daily ran a scathing editorial that labeled the protests as anti-party and anti-government, a label that had essentially been a death sentence only 10 years earlier. While it was intended to frighten the students into submission, it backfired drastically, antagonizing the students further against the government and solidifying their desire for change. The day after after the running of the editorial, anywhere from 50,000 to 100,000 students marched through the streets of Beijing to Tiananmen Square, bursting through police blockades, spurred on by public support along the way. This was the beginning of the official occupation of Tiananmen Square. By the first weekend in May, around 200,000 demonstrators were camped in the square. At this point, Zhao Ziyang returned from North Korea appalled at the state of affairs and irate with Li Peng. The two clashed, and Zhao resumed executive control of the province, overriding Li's desire for control and stability with the statement that the party should show support for increased democracy and transparency. Zhao accepted the invitation for a formal dialogue between the students and leading representatives. In preparation for the dialogue, the students elected representatives to meet with the leaders, while this was a step forward for the movement, Many of the representatives saw this meeting as nothing but a plot to dissuade the students against further action and buy time. This distrust eventually marred the plans for conversation, and plans broke down altogether before the talks could take place. Students decided more drastic measures had to be taken. So on the 13th of May, with 300,000 students and protesters now gathered at Tiananmen Square... Over 3,000 demonstrators began a hunger strike. The drastic measures worked. In response, mass protests took place between May 16th and May 18th throughout the city in support of the students, including members of the police force, the People's Liberation Army, and even some lower party officials. These protests eventually spread to 400 cities nationwide. The protests had reached the point of no return. They were in too deep. At this point, something had to give, and on the 17th of May, it did. By mid-May, with local governments across the country falling into disarray without an explicit statement of action from Beijing on how to address the situation, Deng Xiaoping called a meeting to his home. At the meeting... Zhao Ziyang's strategy that had supported uh, conversation and concession with the student organizations was heavily criticized. Li Peng saw his moment and pounced. Along with two other secretary members, he aired a list of grievances with the way Zhao had conducted himself during the course of the protests, accusing him of showing cracks in the leadership of the country. Zhao backed down, defeated. Deng Xiaoping stated, quote, there is no way to back down now without the situation spiraling out of control, End quote. The decision was made to label the protesters as instruments of the bourgeois liberalism, accusing the leaders as being puppets of a larger conspiracy against the Chinese government. Shortly after, Deng announced that troops would be moved into the square and martial law be enacted. Zhao Ziyang opposed these measures, Li Peng fervently supported them. Deng Xiaoping took leave during the following weeks, stating that he could not bring himself to give the orders he had stated were necessary, putting Li Peng and his cohorts in charge. Li Peng couldn't be happier. On the 20th of May, 250,000 troops were mobilized to be put into the city. At the suburbs, troops were blocked by protesters who surrounded their vehicles and begged them to join their cause. They provided soldiers with food, water, and shelter. Nervous about another backfire, Li Peng withdrew his troops four days later. Protesters saw this as a victory, but Li Peng centers his forces at a base just outside the city. He called for additional reinforcements from across the country. By the last week of May, people across the world had taken notice of the protests. Similar demonstrations had cropped up across the globe in support of the Tiananmen Square hunger strikers, The United States and Japan issued travel warnings to China. On May 28th, 1.5 million people paraded the streets of Hong Kong in solidarity with the Tiananmen Square protests. Observing this, Li Peng decided it was time to act. On June 1st, Li issued a report to the government officials that outlined the necessity of a crackdown in the square by means of physical force. He argued that the students had no intention to leave, and the movement was gaining more and more popular support. He cited a belief held by the Ministry of State Security that American intelligence was interfering with the protests and pushing for democratic reform subversively. Li Peng claimed the only option was to forcibly remove all protesters from the square and quell the revolt once and for all. The officials agreed. On June 3rd, Lee began moving troops into the city, His plan was simple. The operation to clear the square was to begin at 9 p.m. and was to be concluded by 6 a.m. No delays would be tolerated. State media would broadcast warnings to citizens. If a protester was to offer resistance, soldiers had orders to remove them from the square by any means necessary. As the army advanced from every direction, protesters erected barricades in the streets in a feeble attempt of resistance. In one instance, a group of supporters set fire to three trolley cars that blocked a bridge and surrounded the soldiers. After attempting to push them to the side, soldiers fired into the crowd indiscriminately. This resulted in the first casualties of the night. Years later, the death toll was set at 36 for this initial clash. The soldiers advanced. Overhearing the gunfire, army officials intended for civilians to flee, but, as with twice before, these tactics backfired. Bystanders immediately joined the protesters and began attacking soldiers and army vehicles. At first, residents hurled rocks and bricks at soldiers, but this evolved to Molotov cocktails that set cars ablaze. Through the night, over 500 army vehicles would be damaged or completely destroyed. Citizens stood on balconies and screamed, Fascists! to the soldiers as they advanced at 12:15 a.m behind schedule the first armored transport appeared in the square 15 minutes later two more showed up on separate corners of the square one was covered with gasoline soaked blankets by the protesters and set ablaze one hour later soldiers appeared and began to seal off the corners of the square firing upon those who tried to enter students began to flee and the presence in the square was reduced to several thousand who huddled around the monument to the people's heroes. Simultaneously, troops began flooding out of the great hall of the people and the history museum, surrounding the brave protesters in the center who trembled in terror. Completely surrounded, the students issued a plea to the soldiers, reading, We entreat you in peace, for democracy and freedom of the motherland, for strength and prosperity of the Chinese nation, please comply with the will of the people and refrain from using force against peaceful student demonstrators. At 3.30 a.m., by the request of two doctors of the Red Cross, two student leaders agreed to meet with an army official about a peaceful exit from the square. The army official agreed to grant any students safe passage from the square through the southeast corner. During this meeting, Power to the square was cut, plunging the entire scene into pitch darkness. Over the loudspeaker, a voice boomed, Clearance of the square begins now. The students prepared for the end, before the student leaders returned and informed them of the safe passage they'd secured for anyone who'd like to leave. Many students reacted to this development with anger, calling them cowards. Seeing this response, the army officials prepared the use of force. At the command of the army officials, at 4.32 a.m., police and soldiers charged the protesters, seizing cameras and recording equipment and beating dozens of students with riot clubs. Students began to run. Gunfire could be heard. Some ran to the north, but most joined hands and exited through the southeast corridor, sanctioned by the army official. Around 6 a.m., the last reluctant demonstrators were escorted from the square, bruised and bloodied from batons and bayonets. The population of Beijing awoke to smoke rising from Tiananmen Square. The protest was over, but the story wasn't. Around 10 a.m., scores of civilians attempted to enter the square, but were refused access. Many were parents of demonstrators who, who they hadn't heard from and were concerned for their children's safety. Lines of infantry walled the street, and as the crowd approached, the leading officer sounded a warning. Shortly after, the soldiers opened fire on the crowd. Western journalists caught footage of the civilians fleeing the gunfire, and it is some of the only footage available from the protests. On June 5th, The square remained closed, and a column of tanks paraded down as an intimidation technique, warning anyone who would like to protest in the future of the consequences. As this convoy of tanks left the square and began driving down one of the adjacent streets, a single man with a white dress shirt and black slacks, holding two shopping bags, stepped into the street, blocking the tanks. As the tanks came to a stop before the man, He gestured to them, though the gesture was not detailed enough to be discernible by onlookers. In response, the tanks tried to go around him, but he stepped to block their path again. The tanks attempted to drive the other way, but again, the man stepped in front of them. Rather than crush the man, the leading tank stopped its engines and the tanks behind it followed suit. At this, The man jumped to the top of the lead tank and opened the hatch, briefly speaking to the men inside. Once again, as the man and the soldiers inside the tank were the only people nearby, the conversation that took place is lost to history. But shortly after, the man leaped off the tank and the tanks restarted their engines, but the man resumed his post. After another short standoff, two unidentified men emerged from the shadows and grabbed the man, sprinting off with him. This man became known as Tank Man, and is immortalized across the world in one of the most famous pictures in history, a lone man standing before a column of tanks in broad daylight, seemingly unafraid. No one directly involved in this incident is known, yet it remains one of the most influential moments in human memory for all who were alive to see the news headlines. On June 6th, the operation formally came to a close. The square remained off-limits to civilians for another two weeks as soldiers cleaned debris from the grounds. At a press conference that day, Chinese officials stated the official death toll to be standing around 300. This included soldiers and students. They referred to the fallen students whom they numbered 23 to be, quote, bad elements who deserved this because of their crimes, end quote. When asked of the wounded, they stated 5,000 police officers and soldiers and 2,000, quote, lawless ruffians and onlooking masses who understand the situation, end quote. The Chinese Red Cross released a statement that over 2,600 people had been killed on June 4th, directly contradicting the official Chinese report. Several other estimates have been presented over the years, the highest being. 10,000 killed. The June 4th crackdown resulted in the end of a brief period of relative freedom in Chinese journalism. The media became once again state mandated and controlled. Foreign journalists present in the country at the time of the protests were harassed and blacklisted from ever entering the country again. The tiny morsels of film and photography acquired were swiftly smuggled out of the state and aired as quickly as possible. This footage was widely denounced by all major players in the world governments and resulted in the Chinese government quickly attempting to cover the event up. Many of the freedoms introduced in the 1980s were rescinded and any mentioning of the event itself was outlawed. Today, though China is more open and commercial than it was in the 1990s, a shocking fact is that you will be hard-pressed to find anyone born after 1989 who has any knowledge of the Tiananmen Square Massacre living in mainland China. As for Zhao Ziyang, who opposed martial law and the brutal government crackdown, he was expelled from the Chinese leadership on June 29, 1989, three weeks after the incident. To keep in accordance with what I intended this podcast to be when I started it, I leave things at a summary, not giving way too much detail, just giving enough so you get a basic understanding of what took place. This has been Tanner talking about stuff. I've been talking about the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. Thanks again for joining me today and tune in in the future. I love history and I'm going to keep talking about it. Thanks again for tuning in.